How can we use big data sets to understand the effect of substances like alcohol, cannabis and tobacco on our mental health? That's the focus of the work of Dr Susie Gage, a psychologist and epidemiologist here at Liverpool who uses population-sized data sets to try and understand the causal links between recreational drug use and mental health. In this episode, we chat about her research, why she moved to Bristol to join a band, and how she started her award-winning podcast, Say Why to Drugs, with rapper Scroobius Pip. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, remember to subscribe to the Liverpool Scientific wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Today I'm joined by psychologist and epidemiologist Dr Susie Gage, lecturer in psychology, epidemiology, health behaviours and genetic factors here at Liverpool and creator of the award-winning podcast Say Why to Drugs. Susie, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. So most people know that psychologists study the mind and how our brains work and that epidemiologists analyse diseases that affect certain populations of people or of animals. Now, personally, I've never really thought about bringing these two areas of research together, but you're actually both. So can you tell us a bit more about what it means to be both a psychologist and an epidemiologist? Yeah, sure. So the type of research that I do is probably epidemiology more than psychology. So I do a lot of looking at large data sets of populations and looking for patterns within those data. But the topics that I'm interested in probably make more sense in terms of psychology. So I'm really interested in understanding how recreational substances, so things like alcohol, cannabis, tobacco, how they relate to mental health. And you could do that. So there's lots of psychologists that look at the impact of substance use on lots of different outcomes. But to do experimental studies, you need to kind of give people the substances. And that can be quite tricky to do, particularly if the substances are illicit. You have to do things like get licenses to be able to administer them. So in an, you can use epidemiology, which is kind of the study of um, patterns in data, population level health to look at the patterns in the people who choose to use cannabis or tobacco or whatever you're interested in and follow those people up over time and see how that impacts on mental health. So do people who use cannabis, are they more likely to develop mental health problems later in their life than people who don't use cannabis? And obviously this kind of this epidemiological way of doing it, it's called observational epidemiology because what we'd really like to do is um, randomly assign people to different groups and follow them up over time because the people who choose to use cannabis might be different from the people who choose not to use cannabis in lots of ways other mm. than their just their cannabis use. So we kind of then have to take account of all these other differences as well and do some sort of complicated statistical modelling to try and make sure that these differences aren't affecting the associations that we see. So that's kind of how the sort of the psychology side is like the understanding about mental health and things like that. And then the epidemiology side is probably more the techniques that I use to try and answer the questions that I'm interested in. Okay, so what kind of what sort of questions are you asking about um, the associations between recreational drug use, like you said, particularly cannabis and mental health? So I think the thing I'm the most interested in is trying to work out causation. So we know that um, substance use and mental health are associated, 
that people who use substances are more likely to have poor mental health. And that's true of lots of different substances, including alcohol, including tobacco, including cannabis. Mm -hmm. But understanding why, that's the really, really difficult question. So it could be one of a few different options. It could be that the substance use increases the risk of poor mental health. So Mm -hmm. substance use might cause poor mental health. But also it could be that people with people who are struggling with their mental health are more likely to start using substances. Maybe, I mean, I don't really like the term self-medication, but maybe as a way of sort of Of changing their mental state um, to try and, yeah, exactly, to try and cope or to just try and give themselves a bit of respite from feeling Mm -hmm. how they're feeling, even if it's just for a few hours. I think in terms of alcohol, maybe that's something we can all relate to. Like if you've had a really (laughs) difficult day, then when you get home and you sit on your sofa you can often think oh I really a glass of wine would take the edge off or a beer would sort of help get out of the mind space that I'm in and change how Mm. I'm feeling it's not necessarily a very sensible strategy in the long term but in the short term it can really feel like it's helping so maybe the associations in the opposite direction so that mental health leads to increased substance use rather than substance use leading to increased poor mental health or maybe there's no actual link between the two at all and what it is is that something that happens earlier on in life so for example having a difficult childhood that might predict both your likelihood to start using drugs and your likelihood to have poorer mental health and so the association you see between the two is a sort of artifact of something else that's causing both of those things and that's really, really difficult to unpick. But that's that's the kind of research question that I'm really interested in. Yeah, I was just about to say this sounds incredibly complex. The number <laughs> yeah. of factors that affect your whole the whole area of research that you're looking at, you know, an individual person is going to have so many different um factors affecting them whether it's something that's happened in their childhood whether they're having a bad patch at the moment so what sort of trials or or experiments are you doing to investigate these effects and understand and kind of unpick all of the complexity surrounding the data well you make a really really good point there that an individual person has so much other stuff sort of going on as well and Mm -hmm. that's why epidemiology is such a useful tool here because this uses huge data sets like big population level kind of data sets so rather than looking in individuals you're looking for patterns across a whole population so it means that in terms of the conclusions you can draw it's much harder to say that you as an individual are at particular risk of x y and z but it's you can say sort of as a population these two things are linked so i use I did my PhD in Bristol and I used an amazing data set that exists in Bristol called Children of the 90s. And what this is, is it's called a pregnancy cohort or a a, um, longitudinal cohort. And every woman in what used to be Avon, which is Bristol, the city of Bristol and the sort of surrounding area, Mm -hmm. every woman who was pregnant between a date in 1990 and a date in 1991 was invited to join this study to be recruited into this study and about 14,000 women said yes wow and them and their children and now their partners and siblings and um, some of the children have now started having children but they've been followed up ever since so this started in 1990 they're still collecting data from these individuals now 
they've collected data on them not every year but most years in between that time so they've got data on how the pregnancy went they've got data on how the birth was they've got data on the children and the mums during early childhood and and the data that I was using was on the adolescence so when the children had reached adolescence so I guess that was in what, sort of what 2005 they would be mm -hmm. trying to do the maths in my head. <laughs> I think around then yeah. so for my PhD I looked at the um, their substance use at age 16 and how that was related to their mental health at age 18 and so that means I was using sort of data sets of, a, of I think there was about 5,000 people in the data set that I was using because obviously it started off with 14,000. Not everyone remains in the study and not everyone fills out every single questionnaire. So you do get a bit of data loss. It's called attrition. But the data sets are still quite large and you can also use statistics to try and make them more representative because obviously the problem is that certain types of people are more likely to drop out of a study than other types of people. So that adds a bit of bias into your study as well. So it's lots of yeah. sort of using statistics to try and account for all of these limitations in the data but you can really look at patterns and you can take account of earlier childhood mental health because we've got all that information on these individuals because they've had data collected on them ever since they were born and the the study itself children of the 90s is being used by hundreds of researchers across the whole world looking at all sorts of different things so research about um whether babies should sleep on their backs or on their stomachs. Mm -hmm. Some of the most crucial research that we have on that was conducted in this data set. Research about peanut allergies, that was conducted in this data set. Um, and also lots of the biological samples from the pregnancies were kept. So there is a, um, a warehouse in Somerset full of um, buckets with, with placentas <laughs> and formaldehyde. Oh, lovely. And, and actually only, only a few years ago now, someone came up with a research question and was able to go and use those use those samples to, oh, that's incredible. to analyze a question so the sort of I don't know maybe that's reassurance to hoarders out there that <laughs> <laughs> you never know when something's going to come in useful. <laughs> I mean that's absolutely incredible and it sounds like such a seminal sort of research uh, data well data collection I guess and also I think that what what you've touched on and is so important in like you said with epidemiology is that the more data you have the better of an idea that you're going to have about the trends that, that are going on in certain populations and I know that's a very obvious statement but I think especially with recreational drugs people build stereotypes of, of people who use drugs from knowing one or two people who may have certain characteristics and why, why your research is so important is it's because it's really challenging those stereotypes by looking at all the data by looking at very very large populations of people and saying well actually what is the science telling us what patterns are we seeing rather than someone saying oh well my friend who smoked cannabis um has suffered with men mental health issues um and i think that's you know why your re your research is so um crucial really yeah and i think that touches on another issue around stigma as well and that's something i'm interested in at the moment i've got some some research ongoing with colleagues at liverpool john moores trying to understand the impact that stigmatizing views has on people who use substances mm -hmm. so as well as sort of understanding these patterns I think it's really important never to lose sight of the kind of humanity of 
it can be very difficult when you're doing epidemiology and mm. you think oh it's a really interesting population that you're studying but for my entire PhD all I really did was look at spreadsheets of ones and zeros I never got to meet any of the people who were in the study it was all mm. because of anonymity and that kind of thing all I get is the spreadsheet of ones and zeros so I think it's really really important when you are doing work like this at a population level that you never forget that you're talking about sort of individual people uh, who all have very complicated and, and important lives that should never be minimised. Of course. Okay, so let's now take a look back to understand how you developed an interest in this absolutely fascinating area of, of psychology and epidemiology. So you first studied psychology at University College London. So was this an easy choice for you? Had you, had you always had an interest in our minds and how they work? Yeah, I think when I was at school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It took me ages to choose what what A levels I was going to do as well. Back when I was when I was at school, it was people did three A levels. I know that it's changed quite a bit since then, but I at one point I was going to do maths, uh, biology, and chemistry, and then I was going to do politics and music and English, and I really couldn't <laughs> I couldn't decide because I really enjoyed everything <laughs> and I was quite yeah. curious about everything. So I ended up they let me do music after school so I ended up doing maths biology music and English which is a really weird combination <laughs> and one that's kind of like well you don't know what you want to do with your life do you but actually all of those things were incredibly useful for going on to do psychology so the sort of biology you needed really a science the maths of the statistics that you need to do in in psychology to analyze the data that you collect but also that undergrad psychology in particular was was writing a lot of essays and critical thinking and appraising stuff. And actually, I found English, my English A-level to be the most useful in terms of going on to do psychology, mm. um, partly as well, because we studied a book called Regeneration by Pat Barker, which is all about um, the First World War and shell shock and a psychiatrist um, treating soldiers with with shell shock and trying to sort of the kind of formation of understanding the impact that mental health can have on 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 a person and that mm. I found incredibly because it, it's a book that's based partly on real people but it's also sort of fictionalized as well and I found it incredibly powerful read and it really I think that was one of the main things that inspired me to go and do psychology and actually I studied at UCL and I, I had an interview at UCL before I went there and I spent most of the interview talking about that book with the person because <laughs> they'd, they'd recently read it as well so it was it was really great and I feel like that was a good connection and really helped me to get a place on that course as well. So, so during your time at UCL did you enjoy the experience and, and were there any particular moments where you realised actually I think I want to go in and study recreational drugs and how they're affecting our mental health? There, there was actually, although I didn't end up then going down that route, that research route for, a, for another good few years after my undergrad. But one of the things that we were allowed to do at UCL was every year you could go and take one module in another degree across the university. Mm -hmm. And in the first year I went and I took a module in continental philosophy, which to be honest, uh, was pretty <laughs> full on and went slightly over my head. Uh, very interesting, but yeah sort of mind bending yeah <laughs> and in my second year I went to the pharmacology department and I took a module called drugs and the mind mm -hmm. and that was really the first time that anyone said 
anything different than the message that I'd heard at school, which was a kind of just say no, all drugs are bad, which kind of implies that all drugs are the same. Mm -hmm. And this one was very much talking about what's the difference between stimulants and depressants and psychedelics and Mm -hmm. how do they all affect not just the brain, but also the mind. And that was something I found completely sort of revelatory. It was really inspiring. And we also did this amazing practical where people were either given alcohol or nitrous oxide Mm -hmm. and um, we had to do a variety of different tasks so some sort of fine motor tasks like threading a needle some cognitive tasks sort of maths comprehension type tasks um, some creative tasks and the idea was to show that different drugs have really different effects and some Mm -hmm. drugs really impact your sort of physical ability to do things and some really impact your ability to do cognitive tasks and that kind of thing um unfortunately I was in the or fortunately depending on how you look at it I was in the placebo alcohol condition so I did these tasks before and after having a glass of orange juice (laughs) but um it was a really really interesting experiment to take part in and it really kind of changed the way I thought about things Mm. but at that point I thought well I'm this must be the field of research that everyone wants to work in so there's no chance of me of me getting getting a job in this in this mm-hmm. area you have to you'd have to be the best of the best to get this job so I finished my degree and I ended up doing a project looking at synesthesia which I also found really interesting and that's where two senses get kind of linked in your in your brain okay so it's the people who can who see letters as different colours, for example, or what I was actually doing was researching people who see colours when they hear music or they hear sounds. So I was interested in, well, is there some relationship between the shade of the colour and the pitch of the sound that you hear? So I designed this experiment where I matched colours with sounds to see either congruously, so lighter colours with high pitch sounds and darker colours with low pitch sound, or incongruously where they were just randomly paired to see whether people were more likely to remember pairings that sort of made sense rather than didn't make sense. And okay. that I found really interesting, but it was always the the sort of the drug side that really interested me more. Yeah. And so was this, when you did this project in the synesthesia, was that during your master's or was that in your bachelor's degree? That was in my bachelor's degree. Okay. And then I did, I went on to do a master's and in that I looked at, um, language and and brain damage so I I recruited some participants with damage to different areas of their brain and looked at how that impacted on um, either verbs or nouns sort of memory and I matched the participants with brain damage with a group of participants where I sort of transiently altered their brain function by using something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> that so sounds very is, exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really it was really amazing to be able to to have access to this incredible sort of technology to be able to do this study. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, so I don't know whether you might have seen these kind of TMS machines. They look like figures of eight. And you hold them over certain areas of the brain. And if you hold them over the language areas of the brain and someone is speaking, you can disrupt their speech patterns. 
or if you hold it over sort of the motor area of the brain, which is quite close, that can sort of, you can make people's fingers twitch and things like that. Oh, wow. I mean, that sounds incredibly fascinating, but also quite scary as well to have that sort of control. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and my experiment was really long and I didn't have any money to pay participants. So all of my fellow MSc students all had to take part. And I don't think it was a very fun experiment to take part in. So I felt really... <laughs> I felt really bad about that but it was it was really interesting and fun to do. Yeah I bet that sounds absolutely amazing and so I guess during this project you still you, you kind of weren't looking so much at, at the you know the link between recreational drugs and mental health but after your master's that was when you moved to the University of Bristol um, to become a research assistant in the School of Experimental Psychology and and you then also went on to complete a PhD at Bristol like you said so could you tell us a bit more about why you decided to go to Bristol? Yeah well so the reason I moved to Bristol had nothing to do with my career uh, well not my scientific career <laughs> I that's uh, in sixth form at school I joined a band and the band was still going um, after university and our guitarist Brian he was studying medicine in Bristol mm -hmm. so he was obviously still studying when we'd all finished so we decided to all move to Bristol to do the band for a bit so basically I moved to Bristol because I was in a band that's so cool that is the band. coolest reason to... <laughs> so why did you become a research assistant while I was in band and it seemed like a good place <laughs> well I actually so I, I moved to Bristol and I worked for a year just doing temping and, and working on the band before mm -hmm. I got a job at Bristol uni mm -hmm. so I didn't move to Bristol for the job at the university okay I applied for a few sort of assistant psychology jobs as well and I, was, I wasn't successful in getting any of those but then one of the jobs that came up at Bristol Uni was a language um, research assistant job and obviously because I'd done this language project for my MSc I thought mm -hmm. well I might as well try and apply for that and so I got that job which was very lucky and that was kind of my first proper taste of being a researcher mm -hmm. and I ended up working at Bristol doing various different research projects as a research assistant for I think four or five years before I was able to secure PhD funding it took me a really long time I applied quite a lot for PhD funding and kept getting knocked back and it was that was quite a difficult time but I was really yeah. lucky because I was still I still had a research job so I was still working in the university I was still learning skills and I realized that conducting research was something that I just found incredibly rewarding and interesting and I've got, I've got to be honest and say that when I was when I was an undergrad and, and even a master's student, I don't think I realised that research could actually be a career. Um, mm. So it was really it was really great to to realise that actually this is a career path, and I can I, I I think doing a PhD would be something that really appealed to me. And so I started to apply for funding, and eventually I was lucky, and this project came up, and it wasn't in the psychology department; it was in the uh, School of um, Community Medicine. I think it's the School of Social and Community Medicine. It changed its yeah. name about three times while I was part of it. <laughs> but so it was moving, it was moving departments. And that's kind of when I moved from doing just psychology to, to thinking about epidemiology as well and sort of learning really what epidemiology was, which I didn't yeah. necessarily know when I first started. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that opened up a whole new load of skills and kind of tools to be able to answer different questions. Fantastic. And, and so what questions were you looking at during during your PhD? 
So yeah, so my PhD was what, what I described earlier, which was the um, using the children of the 90s data set to look at um, adolescent cannabis and tobacco use in particular, and its association with later psychotic-like experiences and depression. So using data from these young people who were mm -hmm. aged 16 at the beginning of the study and 18 at the end of, well, my bit of the study, yeah. And what did you actually, what, what were the trends that you found from this data set? Well, <laughs> one of the, the sort of main conclusion of my PhD was that it's incredibly difficult to try and unpick these associations, mm -hmm. partly because I wanted to look at cannabis and tobacco use separately. But what we discovered in this cohort, certainly, and I think it's true, particularly in the UK, but also in lots of other places as well, that it's very, very hard to tease out the effects of cannabis from tobacco, mm -hmm. because even if cannabis users don't smoke cigarettes, the majority of them mix their cannabis with tobacco. So if you're interested in sort of the biological effect of the substances separately, it's very, very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. And we tried a few different things. And what we found was that um, if you try and sort of take account for the heaviness of um, cannabis use in your tobacco sample, then if you exclude people who use cannabis when you're looking at the relationships with tobacco, what you find is the heaviest tobacco users are more likely to use cannabis. So you end up with a skewed sample of tobacco users who are, who are much lighter cigarette users than, than the people who also use cannabis. And the mm -hmm. same is kind of true the other way around. But we found that in our sample, there were quite a lot of people who said they didn't smoke cigarettes, but did smoke cannabis. But if we excluded everyone who mixed their cannabis with tobacco, we only ended up with three cannabis users in wow. our entire sample <laughs> who didn't mix their cannabis with tobacco. So mm. obviously, like you, you want you want thousands of people in your sample. If you've only got three, then you get this problem with individuals being very different from each other, and of you just course. can't tell anything from that. So yeah. So how how do you account for that then? Like in terms of nowadays, are you allowed to run trials and experiments where where you would? give people pure because you said you know it's sort of logistical and kind of ethical considerations things like licenses are you allowed at universities to give people a little bit of like cannabis and see what the effects are because obviously I, I have no idea about how these experiments work in in psychology some some places do have licenses to do that but the problem is you're not really interested in or if you're if you're looking at the links between cannabis use and mental health giving someone a little bit of cannabis doesn't really tell you very much apart from the sort of acute intoxication effects but that's okay. not really what you're interested in if you think about it like with alcohol if you have one drink that will affect your mood mm -hmm. but that's not the same as saying alcohol use can cause problems with your mental health or alcohol mm -hmm. use might cause anxiety that's alcohol use over many years probably or certainly over a long period of time so kind of even if we were allowed to run these studies they'd be so expensive yeah. because they take a really long time and also they would be you'd have to trust your participants to stay in the category that you put them in and to comply with what you're saying so you might say that maybe using cannabis once a day for a year might impact on your mental health mm -hmm. but the like even if it was ethically okay to do that study and I don't believe that it is mm -hmm you're asking an awful lot of your participants to, to, to do that yeah to try and understand yeah. that it's a really that's an incredibly long time for someone to be in a trial so 
it's 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 very different from sort of asking someone to take a vitamin pill every day or something like that yeah. and looking at the outcome of that so i think conducting experimental trials to answer these kind of questions just isn't really possible so we have to kind of look at other ways of being inventive and being able to do this and observational epidemiology is one of them but yeah. there are other ways being kind of worked worked on at the moment too it's it's making me realize that um in in physics it's it's a lot more easy to control <laughs> particles than to control people and what people do <laughs> yeah 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 people say psychology is not a proper science but it's one of the more difficult ones in my opinion because yeah people people don't behave in regular predictable ways in the way that particles do <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely so after your time at Bristol um, in 2017 you joined the University of Liverpool as a lecturer in psychology um, so what made you decide to, to move away from Bristol and to join Liverpool a few a few things really like it was definitely the time for the sort of the next step in my career and I'd been working on short-term contracts up until that point and that's it's it's a challenging way to sort of to exist <laughs> yes <laughs> um, constantly trying to apply for the next job while you're trying to do the current job so it's kind of the holy grail of academia is to find a permanent position mm -hmm. to move to but also I from going to conferences and things I know the I knew the addiction group in in Liverpool very well and I knew that they do great quality research and that they're also a really lovely bunch of people. So I was like, if I'm going to move anywhere in the country, then going and working with a group of people that I already know and I already really respect and like and can think of good collaborations straight away. That seemed like a great, a great thing to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I nearly asked if you if you joined another band and, and they moved to <laughs> Liverpool. But... No, no, I had to I had to leave my band in oh, Bristol. No. So that oh. was the worst part of it. Um, oh. Yeah, and Bristol's a great city to live in, but Bristol and Liverpool are surprisingly similar in lots of ways. Um, I think partly because both of them are sort of port cities on the west coast of England and mm -hmm. they've got great music scenes, both of them. So, I mean, I obviously appreciate that. And they're relatively small for the amount of sort of stuff that you can do in the cities. So I yeah. do feel like it was a great, a great place to move to from Bristol. Definitely. So as well as uh, conducting your absolutely fascinating research, you're also seriously enthusiastic about public engagement from talks at the Royal Institution to writing articles for The Guardian, but most notably your award winning podcast Say Why to Drugs, which delves into the science behind recreational drugs and how they can harm and also sometimes help us. So can you tell us a bit more about why you started this podcast and why outreach is important to you? Yeah, I got really into this sort of public engagement, science communication, kind of whatever you want to call it, really. Um, while I was doing my PhD, I took part in an event called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here, mm -hmm. which paired, I think, five researchers with eight classes of school children around the country. And the children could ask us any questions they wanted about anything. Mm -hmm. um, and partly it was to show that science isn't one thing there's lots of different types of science and lots of different types of scientists so mm -hmm. I'm a psychologist I don't know how much the moon weighs but I can tell you about sort of the things that I know about mm -hmm. and whereas a physicist can tell you about um, something else you know but not all scientists know everything about everything kind of thing mm -hmm. and one of the things you had to do as part of this was say there was a 500 pound prize 
and for the winning scientists. So basically the, the kids asked you questions for the first week and then in the second week, they uh, one, one person at a time, you got voted out and then the winner got some money to do some public engagement. Okay. But you had to tell the young people what you would do with the money. And I said, I'd create a podcast aimed at their age group about what we know about recreational drugs, but without any of the kind of hyperbole or spin that you quite often get around and the judgment actually maybe mm -hmm. the most importantly so just presenting sort of the evidence what we know but also what we don't know mm -hmm. kind of being honest and informative so I ended up winning and that meant I then had to make this podcast <laughs> and I tried to make it a few times I interviewed some researchers and it was entirely my fault, but they were really, really dry interviews. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know how to conduct an interview. I didn't know what were good questions to ask. I didn't know how to get the best out of my guests. And mm -hmm. so I sat on this idea for a good couple of years after, after winning this money. I bought myself a USB microphone and then did very little. Um, <laughs> and then by complete luck, I, was, I met Scroobius Pip, who is a podcaster himself and a uh, poet and an actor now as well mm -hmm. and he makes a podcast called Distraction Pieces where he interviews someone he finds interesting once a week and the interviews are usually like they're quite long they're about an hour and a half mm -hmm. um, and he was going to be in Bristol and tweeted to his followers who should I interview in the southwest and someone suggested Huey from the Fun Loving Criminals and someone suggested me and Huey was busy so so Pip ended up coming to my house and we had a lovely chat all about the type of research that I do and this kind of thing and I told him about my podcast idea and he said three things he said oh you should call it say why to drugs mm -hmm. and I was like oh that's a really good name yeah and the best I'd come up with was smoke screen which wasn't cutting it so he said that he said you should structure it as you as the expert talking to a non-expert but interested friend mm -hmm. I was like oh that's a really good idea that's actually much better than me interviewing a researcher is having it much more as a conversation mm -hmm. and then he said and I'm starting a podcast network and you can put the podcast out on my network if you want amazing so I was like well that fell in my lap a little bit <laughs> I, <laughs> I felt incredibly lucky and also he said that he could be the the friend that I talked to so for the first well most of the episodes that are about a particular substance it's me mm -hmm. and Pip having a chat where I've done some research to look at um, what we know in terms of the evidence um, about short-term effects longer-term effects mm -hmm. um, do the, does this substance have any medical uses and also lots of the myths and misconceptions that exist around different recreational drugs and Pip asks the questions that the listener is is thinking. He also talks about either his own experience or his or the experience of friends who might have used the substance that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it provides a sort of a much more rounded view of a substance than just me going. And this is what we know about the chemical structure of this substance. And mm -hmm. this is what we know about the risks. And, and, he, and then he can talk about actually what it's like to take that substance or what he's heard about it and also question some of the myths and misconceptions as well so it just it just worked really well it was much more interesting to listen to and yeah so it's kind of jumped off from there really 
yeah and I think it's it's such a fantastic idea because like you said it's one thing to talk to researchers about the like you said the chemical structure of, of, a, of a substance but as much as you know they are illegal and or many of them are illegal drugs are an inherent part of our society and people do take them and to, to have a kind of grown-up conversation which is informed by science about you know that these these substances and how they affect us I think is is really fantastic because there is still a lot of stigma around drugs for various reasons and I think getting the science out as to why people react in certain ways and how they affect us is is really imperative and and I have actually got to ask I've just thought of it quite an interesting question which is do you have like a favorite substance in the way it affects the body <laughs> so after I did the podcast I also I've just written a book that's sort of based on the podcast which is mm-hmm. also called say why to drugs mm-hmm. and that goes into an even kind of deeper dive into these different substances mm-hmm. and I don't know whether I'd say this substance is my favorite in terms of it, the effects that it has mm-hmm. but it was the most fun or interesting maybe not fun but it was the I learned the most while I was researching it and that was ketamine and okay. the, part of the reason is because Ketamine is so useful. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's widely used in veterinary science, mm-hmm. um, but it's also potentially really harmful. It can cause quite serious bladder problems in, in recreational users who use it very heavily. Mm-hmm. But I just found it so fascinating to learn about it, sort of how it was developed. It was developed as a medication. Um, and it's incredibly useful because as an anesthetic, it's a dissociative anesthetic. But one of the difficulties we have with, with anesthetics is you, you, you have to breathe them in, but with ketamine, you don't necessarily have to breathe it in, it can be injected. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's, it's much loath to use the word safer, but mm-hmm. it's got what we call a larger window of efficacy. And this means you can give someone a larger dose, two, two larger dose, at a higher level before someone will experience toxicity from it. Okay. So when you're um, somewhere where you're quite far away from proper medical facilities, for example, so it's really useful in war zones, it's really mm-hmm. useful, paramedics use it quite a lot because it can be given with without having to sort of really carefully weigh someone and work out a dose, you can be a bit more quick and and rough with the dosage I mean obviously within reason mm-hmm, but it's also that's why it's really useful for um, large mammals it quite often gets called a horse tranquilizer because it is really useful for animals like horses because it's really difficult to give a horse a different kind of anesthetic and apparently it's very very useful in, in camel medicine as well so, oh <laughs> you know, I learned all these things while I was researching the book and just found it fascinating yeah I, and I think it again it just shows that although ketamine does have a bit of a stigma attached to it in terms of a, as an illegal drug it it still has so many benefits like you said in terms of war zones and with paramedics and there are so many drugs like that especially with with the legalization of medicinal cannabis being a lot in in the news recently and it's it's kind of separating and and it's 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 such a difficult question i mean we could talk for hours about how you how you go about making sure that drugs are used safely for for their intended purpose but but i guess my point is the podcast gives people an opportunity to learn about these drugs from a verified source and to know exactly what the science is behind all of it 
which is why I think it's such such a brilliant podcast. I've absolutely loved listening to the episodes and, and I really do recommend anyone listening to this podcast to go and check it out, um, which I guess really brings us to today um, where you're now Senior Lecturer of Psychology here at Liverpool. So what are the next steps for your research here at Liverpool? It's a very good question. And also it's one that I'm sort of weighing up at the moment as well, because as well as my research, I'm... Um, two well one week away from going off on maternity leave as well so I'm gonna have oh, a little bit of a, thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna have a little bit of a break from my research but um mm -hmm. the things I'm really interested in at the moment are the work with stigma that I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier that I'm doing with some colleagues at John Moores I'm also looking at some really interesting work trying to look at what's changed over the past 10 years in terms of adolescent mental health substance use and the relationship between those things and mm -hmm. I'm doing that with a colleague at UCL who used to be at Liverpool and um, that's using the children of the 90s data set I mentioned but also a new data a newer data set called the millennium cohort study which as you might guess um, is uh, people who were born around the year 2000 so they're 10 years younger than the young people in the children of the 90s cohort mm -hmm. so we're looking at when when young people were age 14 in 2005 from the children of the 90s cohort compared to 14 year olds in 2015 from the millennium cohort and kind of seeing what's changed because there's lots of reports about sort of depression and self-harm and things being on the rise mm -hmm. in young people at the moment so what we really want to do is explore well why is that happening how is that related to things like substance use, because there are also reports that young people are drinking less alcohol now than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on? So trying to kind of unpick what these associations might mean. And I think that's a piece of work I'm really excited about at the moment. I'm also working with colleagues looking at um, the impact of um, becoming a parent on alcohol use and um, all sorts of things really and I also have a fellowship at the moment from the Wellcome Trust to do more public engagement so that's something that I'm doing a lot of at the moment as well. Amazing I mean there are so many questions to answer about about this sort, sort of area and it seems like you're doing a very good job of trying to answer many lot, well lots of those questions. <laughs> yeah the, the trick is to have amazing collaborators and then you can then you can look at all sorts of things yeah. Definitely oh well Susie Gage it has been absolutely incredible to talk to you your research is fascinating the podcast is absolutely brilliant um, and, and to hear about your remarkable career exploring how recreational drugs affect our mental health has been really really amazing so thank you so much for joining me today is there anything you'd like to um, say before we finish? Um, just if anyone's interested in uh, like asking me any more questions or finding out any more stuff or seeing what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Sousaphone. Um, also, yeah, my book, Say Why to Drugs, and my podcast, Say Why to Drugs, are available. Um, I'm also, for students who are, particularly those students that I teach on a medical degree and students on the nursing degree, who've been working in the NHS over COVID-19, I started a podcast recently with a colleague um, Helen West called the Coping with Covid podcast which is all about how to look after your mental health and well-being during a pandemic so that's something that people might be interested in checking out as well. 
Amazing. Well, that sounds absolutely brilliant. It's just another amazing thing that you do. <laughs> so Susie, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your Liverpool Scientific. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Follow at Live Scientific on Instagram and Twitter to find out who I'm going to be talking to next and when the next episode is going to be released.